Your story is waiting for you today. Your story has something new to say. But your story will only come out to play when you're alone. Alone. Alone in a room with invisible people. The following episode may contain swearing. Alone in a Room with Invisible People is brought to you by hollyswritingclasses.com. If you find value in what we do and you'd like to support the podcast, go to coffee.com, that's K-O hyphen F-I dot com forward slash alone, or you can go to alonewithinvisiblepeople.com forward slash support us to find out more. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Alone in a Room with Invisible People's Halloween Special Listener Edition Part (laughs) 2. Well, I hope that you guys enjoy the following stories. Again, we just want to give a massive thanks to everybody who submitted. A massive thanks to Holly and Mark for also doing so well with the recordings. Especially, again, Mark, who... (laughs) Schedule was not podcast-friendly, so we... I really, really appreciate everything he did. And the music again today is brought to you by one guy, Kevin McLeod. He has a lot of range and a lot of music. You can find all of the authors listed alphabetically by story at alonewithinvisiblepeople.com. You can check out both part one and part two. Some of the authors may have provided links as well if you're interested in more of their work. You'll also see a link to Kevin McLeod's work and all of the songs used in today's episode. So again, I just want to say thank you guys. And if you're interested in being a part of the Halloween special next year, take a look at Holly's free How to Write Flash Fiction That Does Not Suck course. You can find it at hollyswritingclasses.com. It's a free three-week course that teaches you a lot about writing in general, not just about writing flash fiction, but we would love to have your entries as well. Next year, the submission process is going to be a little bit different, and I don't know that we're going to be accepting quite so many stories, but again, I would love to have another two-parter. This is a really fun pet project within my passion project, so enough of my rambling yet again, and let's get on to some amazing stories. The Neighbor by Megan A. Collins. Disgusting. I marched across the street to my neighbor's dilapidated old house. What a blight on our perfect neighborhood. Now that I was the president of the Homeowners Association, I knew it was my job to set this guy straight. He was bringing down all of our home values with his trash. His entire yard was a wreck. Junk everywhere, all covered in vines that were taking over the entire front yard. I nearly tripped over a vine. Then I carefully stepped over the rotting boards on his front porch as I approached his cobweb-covered front door. I knocked on his front door and it shook. I heard some strange noises, almost like an animal roar. Uh, Geez, what next? Did this guy have illegal animals as pets too? I shook my head in disgust. Either he would clean up his act or I would get him kicked out of my neighborhood. I knocked again. I could hear someone stumbling around, so I knew this degenerate was home. Probably drunk. I would not leave until I had my say. I knocked harder. 
The neighbor finally cracked open the door, and he looked worse than I'd ever seen him. He was young and muscular, but right now his face was washed out with dark circles under his eyes, and his dark hair was wet with sweat. Looked like one hell of a hangover. What? He asked in a raspy voice. His eyes glowed red. I blinked. His eyes were brown. Hi, you may not remember me, but I live across the street. I gestured to my house. I'm Jeff, and I'm the new HOA president for our neighborhood. I stuck out my hand. The neighbor ignored my hand. His red eyes bore into mine. I blinked, and his eyes were brown again. I lowered my hand. Sir, you are in violation of numerous HOA regulations. We need to talk about what you can do to get your property into compliance. He grinned a feral grin. His eyes flashed red, then brown. I blinked again. Come in, he said. The door creaked as it opened wider. I gasped as I saw his blood-stained clothes. Come, he said. His red eyes stared intensely into my eyes. I relaxed and followed him in. Ignore the mess, he said. I calmly stepped over the pentagram in the middle of the floor, covered with puddles of blood and surrounded by black candles. Smoke drifted from the blackened wicks. The body of that panhandler I reported to the police last week laid on the floor nearby. We sat on the blood-splattered couch. Tell me more about this H-O-A, he said. So I did. Yes, this fits into my master's plan. I can spread much misery this way, he said. And he went on to become the best damn HOA president we ever had. The Exception by Vanessa Wells When the dead began to rise out of their graves and snack on anyone they could get their decaying hands on, I was the exception. The dead loved me. I contemplated how weird my life had become as I used a bulldozer to move the remains of dozens of poor souls, a skill I'd picked up post-apocalypse. No way a runty orphan girl was going to be allowed to run this kind of machinery pre-Z. There was no one to tell me no now. Just the constant reek of putrefying flesh that had been my sole companion for three long years. I'd gone nose-blind to the worst of it, but it was still a daily chore to keep the dead cleaned up so I didn't accidentally slip in some unknown and unappealing fluid and knock myself out. And I used to complain about taking out the trash. The dead didn't want to eat me. They wanted to chat with me. At least until they liquefied and I moved them out of the way with a bulldozer. You know what sounds good? One of the new dead looked up with eyes that seemed almost alive in a fever-bright kind of way. I muttered, let me guess, brains. Brains. You, you don't know where I could score some, do you? He shambled alongside the machine. Hey, why don't you invite some people here? It would be fun. I rolled my eyes. It was really better to not engage. A noise startled me. Gunshots. I closed my eyes. Oh, God, no. Whoever was shooting had no idea what they were heading for. I hurried towards the shots. A caravan of jacked-up monster trucks was parked in the road, impressive weapons on display as they finished off a few dozen straggling zombies. 
They had no idea that there were thousands rousing themselves in various parts of the ruined city where I lived. I waved a hand. Hey! A thick-set man and a dirty wife-beater grinned at me. Looky here, boys. We got us a live one. He took three giant strides to pick me up. Y you've got to go. The zombies... His breath was foul as his hands moved in a way that I didn't appreciate. Y you need to listen. Another large man lumbered forward and took a long strand of my hair in his fingers. We aren't scared of zombies, girl. He cocked his gun. We'll just take you with us and you can be our little emotional support pet. None of the men with him protested. I snapped my mouth shut and closed my eyes. I could hear the shambling, feel the zombies making their slow way to me, like a cold, dead tidal wave. When it was over, I was covered in gore, and the talkative zombie was grinning at me with blood-covered teeth, eyes reminding me of a demented puppy. You invited people! And now, for an airwhip first... <laughs> A story as read by the author. Bratman versus the Tooth Fairy by Greg I. Veg. I'm Bratman. I bit a radioactive bratwurst when I was in college. My arms and legs disintegrated, but I gained superpowers. I'm hovering at the top of a phone pole. My worst sense whimpers. We're gonna die. So many bad guys. Relax. It's costumed kids. This neighborhood crawls with princesses, pirates, and zombies. Oh, no! It's Halloween! Tonight, the Tooth Fairy paralyzes some bad kids and pulls out their baby teeth. He's never hit Shedderton. I plan to keep it that way. Now let me fix this surveillance cam. Angry yelling, Give me back my candy, Billy! I hope the Tooth Fairy gets you! Nine-year-old Billy O'Reardon sprints between houses, a clattering blur of oversized football gear. I levitate him a foot off the ground, his arms and legs flailing. Return that candy and apologize. Put me down, you floating poop. Billy? I ain't scared of no fairy. He throws the candy in an arc. I drop him, catch the bag and most of the candy. Billy runs up the street, kicking jack-o'-lanterns, pushing kids. I return the bag to a crying princess. Here's your candy. Some's missing. You got grease on it. Ooh. I tail Billy as he jogs through Cherry Street Park. His home is on the other side, a dirty brick duplex that smells of dash hound and stale baked beans. My worst sense whines. Scary shadows. Black van. Bad guy. Surgical mask. Pistol. The man fires at Billy. I deflect the dart. Billy O'Reardon charges the Tooth Fairy. Ninety pounds of fear and fury slam helmet first into the fairy's groin. The Tooth Fairy screams but fires a dart into Billy's unprotected back. Billy drops, paralyzed, totally conscious. I try to drag the kid away. The fairy has a death grip on Billy's face mask. Let go, Bratman. Any telekinesis, I'll break the punk's neck. Click! A blinding flash! I shake my head to clear my vision. The dart gun coughs twice, stabbing pain. I can't open my eyes, turn my head, or speak. The fairy chuckles. Well, O'Reardon, looks like I'm extracting molars. It's only fair. You've caused years of torment. Worst sense moans. He's got flyers! 
Where's the gun? Waistband! I drop a whispering net of power over the fairy. I feel the pistol grip. I squeeze the trigger. A dart pierces the fairy's thigh. He drops. I zip tie his wrists to his rear bumper. Leave him for the cops. I float Billy O'Reardon home, feeling my way through the park, as worst sense warns me of every possible obstacle. Billy's dog snarls behind the door as I unlock it. I can't tell Billy he's a brave kid. I can't warn him to change his ways. Not tonight, when he might actually listen. I open the door, slide Billy onto his living room couch, and cover him with a blanket. The dash hound licks grease off Billy's face. I lock the door as I leave. I'm Bratman. I protect the people of Cheddarton, even the messed up ones. A Corny Halloween by Ann M. Beardsley. Come on, Jesse, it'll be fun. You need to get out, meet some people. Studying by yourself is no way to find a date. We can dress up. Nobody will know it's us. Ellen, my 22-year-old sister, begged. Only if I can be the back end of a horse, I replied, turning a page in my biology text. Masquerade parties on Halloween at the country club are not my thing. And preppy folks who think they own the world are not my type. The only time I tolerate them is when I'm doing my magician's act and they're focused on my hands, not me. I can work with that. There's that new costume shop near the store where you get all your magic stuff. I bet they have unicorns. I cursed. I must have said something out loud because she laughed and flitted off. Party day came and with it the unveiling of the Ulysses unicorn. I resigned myself to being bent over for hours listening to Ellen flirt her way through a throng of disguised rich people. After we made our first circuit of the room, I'd figured out most of them by their voices. Ah, my old enemy, the unicorn, a creepy voice interrupted. It was no voice I'd heard before, and the six inches I saw of tawny ankle gave no clue to his identity. Ellen didn't pick up on the creep vibe at all. Hi, are lions and unicorns enemies? We'll have to remedy that. Fancy some wine? She veered towards the beverage cart, and I dutifully followed. The more creepy voice talked and faux flirted, the flatter Ellen's voice became, as if she were under some spell. When she agreed to meet him by the club's back door, I got worried. When two other sets of legs surrounded us, I was in full alert. But what can you do when you're stuffed into yards of fabric? A real magician could vanish it with a flick of her wand. Boys, let's help this fine unicorn into the van, creepy voice suggested as he thwacked my rump. Something like lightning lit up the sky and surged through his arms, surprising all of us. I could see his arm bones through the costume, like an x-ray from God. What the... Jess, what are we doing here? Who are these guys? Ellen whispered, her voice back to normal. Who knows? Let's just leave and figure it out later, I said. Creepy voice had other plans. Grab them. You, grab the horn. Hank, the tail. Let's move. When Hank grabbed my tail, the skies brightened again. Hank landed on the ground. This time I heard a scuffle, and then an engine roared away. Jess, what happened? Don't know, I said. Magic costume? But do unicorns protect virgins, or vice versa? I put checkout costume shop on my to-do list. Maybe some of the magic from the store next door was bleeding into it. Not all magic is on stage, you know. Live customer support. 
by Lexi Stanton. We are experiencing an unusual call volume at this time. Your expected wait is 138 minutes. The harsh computer-generated voice inserted the soul-sucking wait time in contrast to the cheery recorded announcement. I held the phone away from me and stared at it in disbelief. 138 minutes? I snuffled and put my head down on the crumpled letter, dug out of a stack of mail I'd long ignored. All employees must log in and register for a medical benefits plan by 8.59 p.m. October 31st. Should you encounter any difficulties, call our live customer support agents available from Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. It was 4.13 on October 31st. I was so screwed. I was just recovered from my cold long enough to start digging out of the pile of my deferred duties, but a long way from being ready to deal with bureaucratic stonewalling. My eyes landed on the address of the customer support center at the bottom of the letter. If I could get in the door before closing, I could refuse to leave until they helped me. Hello? I called and listened to the echo through the warehouse. Faintly, I could hear the ring of phones and the murmur of voices. The door in the middle of the only hallway was helpfully labeled Customer Support Center, door to remain closed at all times. Undeterred, I entered. Hello? I tried again. Uh, can anyone help me with a login problem? Slowly, the droning fell silent. Lidless eyes and gray complexions, most with loose pieces of flesh hanging from their slack jaws, peered over the sides of office dividers. Brains, came the first low rumbles, taken up by more and accompanied by the shuffle of crypt souls on worn linoleum as they ignored the still bleeding phones to focus on me. Uh, login help? I asked hesitantly, backing up a bit. Suddenly I understood why they'd used quotation marks around the word live when describing the customer support. Brains, came the loud, chorused reply as the lead members of the zombie customer support mob lunged toward me with blackened fingers outstretched. I ran for the exit. A suited man with upper management written all over him was just entering the lobby. Who opened the door? His eyes landed on me with an accusing stare. He was blocking the exit, so I slid to a stop. One of the zombies grabbed my arm. No! I screamed, flinching away as its unhinged jaw approached my arm. Stop! I opened my eyes at the sudden quiet. Every zombie in the place had frozen in place. I pried the desiccated fingers off my wrist and winced as one digit dropped to the floor. The executive turned calculating eyes on me. A zombie whisper, he uttered, awe in his voice. How would you like a job here? We can offer a very competitive wage. I looked at the still frozen zombies and back at the executive. Would I get medical with that? Once in a Blue Moon by Danielle Cormier He remembered it well. The crisp autumn air, the sounds of excited children, crowded streets full of strange and sometimes terrifying costumes. 
It was the one night of the year when all the city's residents poured out of their homes in celebration of All Hallows Eve. Young, old, rich, poor, living, dead. Drifting unseen through the city, he observed the rarest sights. Vampires holding hands with werewolves. Monsters limping alongside humans with not one scream of terror uttered by anyone. Genies granting wishes in the guise of sideshow fortune-tellers. Preternatural beings bestowing both curses and blessings upon those around them. For this one magical night, all were welcome. All belonged. At his destination, he shifted form to something corporeal and more appropriate for the occasion. In his hand jingled the odd coins and discarded bills he'd collected along the way. The Blue Moon Diner had always been his favorite, and as he walked inside, he hoped he had brought enough. Place is dead tonight, he said to the waitress in way of conversation. Everyone's in the street partying. Menu? No, he replied with what would be described on any other night as a haunting smile. Money now on the counter, he was searching his pockets for more. Fistfuls of quarters coaxed from teens who'd ventured into the cemetery over the summer, a wad of $20 bills he'd rescued from a wallet lying unnoticed on the ground, and a crisp $100 bill he'd gotten in payment for participating in a seance. He chuckled, recalling the astonishment on the medium's face when he set the terms of their arrangement. That's a lot of money, the waitress said as he deposited the rest of it on the counter. Too much? Depends on what you're buying, she said. I'd like an order of scrambled eggs with a side of home fries. A plate of buttered toast. Why a wheat? she asked without looking up. Both. Waffles with maple syrup. A cup of coffee. Free refills on the coffee, she said automatically. He nodded before continuing. A side of bacon. Some of those jelly packets. A glass of freshly squeezed orange juice. Buttermilk biscuits, a cheeseburger with the works. No, make that too. How do you like it? I don't really know. However the chef wants to do it is fine by me. Do you have milkshakes? She nodded. Three milkshakes, chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. Some pie, lemon meringue, pumpkin, cherry, apple, uh, and a dollop of vanilla ice cream. Will your party be arriving soon? No, it's just me. Her pen stopped scratching on the notepad. The cook won't make all this food for one. He removed the hundred-dollar bill and slid it across the table. This is for you. Just keep it coming, a few dishes at a time, until the money runs out. She hesitated before saying a quick, thanks, and pocketing the money. That's a lot of food for one person. I've got all night. Lonely Lucy by Bill Bush Lucy jumped as thunder shook the window of the 15th floor apartment. She hated storms, but she hated the deathly feel of her apartment even more. So she sat in her rocker next to the window and endured the storm that had stolen the usual midday sun, the sun that she considered her best friend. Her roommates were nice enough, but Zoe worked a lot. Bailey, or Nurse Bailey as Zoe called her since Lucy had broken her leg, was not as helpful as Zoe thought she was. Neither of them understood Lucy's fear. For each hour, Lucy stared out the window, begging the sunshine to reappear. The sky drew darker. 
The gusting wind slapped rain against the window, startling Lucy from her thoughts. Lightning flashed and the apartment went dark, along with every light within view of the apartment window. Bailey left the room to sleep, apparently taking comfort from the dark apartment and droning rain. The lightning frightened Lucy. When it ceased, she was horrified. Without the lightning to illuminate the sky in the apartment, Lucy was unnerved, petrified. The storm raged on. Each moment in complete darkness was utter torture. She wanted to leap out the window. She wanted her life over, but she couldn't move. Boo! Lucy sprang from her seat and tumbled to the floor. She propped herself up, unable to stand with the broken leg. Her eyes darted in a desperate attempt to spot the culprit. Suddenly, from behind her, it came again. Boo! She rolled over and took a swipe, even though she knew it was useless. The ghost just floated in the air and laughed as Lucy's swing went right through it. Lucy stared at her unwelcome third roommate, waiting for its next attack. Bailey must have heard the commotion. She came running into the room. Lucy desperately wanted Bailey's presence to bring her comfort. She wanted Bailey to understand her fear, to see the phantom that haunted her this time each year. Lucy listened to the ghost laugh hysterically as Bailey carefully scanned the room. She looked at Lucy and shook her head as she walked away. Bailey couldn't see or hear the things Lucy could. Lucy crawled under a blanket on the floor and endured the haunting sounds. The ghosts tormented her all afternoon, just as it had done every other Halloween. Finally, Lucy heard a noise at the front door. Zoe, returning home from work. Without the sunshine to keep the ghost at bay, desperation overtook hopelessness, and Lucy determined to explain everything to Zoe, to make her understand this time. She hobbled into the living room. The door opened and Zoe appeared. Water dripped off her as she set down the umbrella. She closed the door and bent down, beaming at the sight of Bailey and Zoe. Before Bailey could lick Zoe's face, Lucy screamed, The Man of Your Dreams, Gina Fabio Rachel dreamed of a man she'd never met. She never understood what it meant. He just silently led her down the stairs, by the cliff, and into the old smuggler's cave that everyone said was haunted. And the last girl to say she'd been having strange dreams had gone missing months ago. Run away in the night, they said. But her parents didn't believe it. And the rumors said there was a baby. So Rachel wasn't about to say anything. Last night, the man handed her that baby. But tonight, it was Halloween, which meant the kids too old for trick-or-treating were out drinking smuggled beers on the bluff above the cave and daring each other to go in. A cheer went up as the latest dare-taker climbed back up the stairs intact. I'll go down next, she announced, and another cheer went up. They toasted her as she descended. The cold in the ocean made the wood slippery, so she took her time about it. The cave was dark and just as damp, somehow. Her dreams always left that part out. And she pulled out her phone and turned on its flashlight. That wasn't allowed, usually. But what better time to investigate than with a whole crowd of people waiting for her return? If she didn't, someone would notice. But that was morbid and silly. The most she'd find was more wet rock. She pressed further into the cave. It went on for a while, a single winding passage. 
and every step of it so familiar, she could swear she heard the silent man's footsteps walking with her. There was no man when she turned the next corner, but there were candles, and in the middle of them a bundle of cloth. It whimpered. Hello? Rachel said. There was no response, but the bundle twitched. She stepped closer. It was an infant. There was a baby alone in the cave, surrounded by candles. A chill ran up her spine, and she turned, but the tunnel behind her was empty. Still, a baby. She carefully scooped it up and hurried back out to the stairs. Rachel? Someone called behind her, and something rustled, and she nearly tripped. But there was someone at the mouth of the cave ahead, and the place echoed badly and was windy to boot, so she hurried on to meet him and didn't look back. I found a baby, she told him breathlessly. Shit, he ran up the stairs ahead of her. It wasn't until the police had been called and the beer hidden and the baby handed over that she found the paper tucked into her back pocket. He's real, it read, signed by the missing girl. A chill ran up Rachel's spine again. She looked over the cliff, down at the bottom of the cave, where the darkness hid the details, a man waved and vanished. So Much to See by Nadia Batista As I leave the car, I can't stop my hands from shaking. I don't want to come closer to the other car, but I know I have to do it. They are parked on the other side of the road, and each step torments me with a nauseous feeling. She also leaves the car, trembling and looking like she may faint at any moment. I know I have to come closer to her. She is my sister, after all. I watch her sitting on the sidewalk, head between her knees. What the hell was that? My other sister comes up to me, shoving me, her eyes big and round with fear. You left us behind! How could you? I can't answer. Ten minutes ago, all I could think about was saving me. No regards for my sisters. I just wanted to save my life. I close my eyes before answering, while Neela keeps cursing at me. She's the middle sister, and she feels no remorse when talking like that to either me or her older sis. And when I close them, for a fraction of a second that feels like ages, I see it all again. The old abandoned hospital. The darkness around us. The ruined chapel. And the sound. That eerie, terrible, dreadful sound of my sister laughing like a maniac. No, I'm sorry. That was not my sister. That was a, a, another thing with her. Inside her. I don't know. I don't want to know. All I did was get in that freaking car and drive away. We'll stop by the church, I thought. They will follow me, and we'll stop there. There was no way in hell I was going to stand by and witness my sister going through that. Last time, I promised. Never again. I opened my eyes. I have to meet a couple of friends. Take her home. I cry inside. I don't want to. I love my sister, but no. 
Next thing I know, we're both in my car. Her boyfriend on the passenger seat, she on the back seat. The silence falls heavy. I can see in the mirror that my sister won't stop looking at me. I begin to feel my heart pounding in my ears, and I can see her boyfriend saying something, but the sound of my heart is louder than anything. My sister begins to smile, a faint, devilish smile. I press the pedals harder. I just want to go home. But then she speaks. Why are we leaving? There's still so much to see over there. That isn't her speaking. Not with that tone, that accent. I look at the road. We're at the hospital again. How did this happen? Come. I have so much to show you. All I can feel is how easily I lose the grip on the steering wheel. The road spins feverishly around the car, and it all becomes dark when I hit my head hard. Among the chaos, I hear my sister laughing. The Recruiter by R.J. Reimer Ma'am, I said with my polished hospital whisper, loud and clear enough that I wouldn't have to go through this again but soft enough to be polite and avoid any HIPAA complications. I'm sorry to intrude. I saw your husband was an organ donor. She dabbed at her eyes, face somehow trembling and locking simultaneously, helping me hate myself just a little bit more. Finally, she nodded. A balding man next to her, maybe her brother-in-law, put his arm around her, his well-muscled arm. Damn, I hoped he was the strong, silent type. By law, you have the right to choose where you would like his tissues donated. Just as he did in life, he has the opportunity to continue helping provide you stability through the residual income offered by Zombie Farms Incorporated, where he can provide for his family while still providing the ethical labor the world needs. Security got me out of the waiting room a few moments later. The balding gentleman had not been the strong, silent type. I pushed through the doors to the staff break room, hoping I would be alone. Terry was there. Hey, Frank, you old ghoul. Ha, you got me, Terry. Vampires have very little sense of sarcasm, but they love their dad jokes. Terry silently chortled as he sipped at his bag. He was quite possibly the best phlebotomist in the hospital, but I suspected it was just so he could indulge in the medically necessary leftovers. I was not a vampire, or even, as Terry very well knew, a ghoul. I was human, as human as they come, trying to survive college without killing the next 30 years of my finances with student loan debt by working a bad job that didn't pay enough. I paid two bucks for a burrito from the machine and popped it into the microwave. How bad was it? Lady's husband died of a heart attack, and they didn't find him in time to get his heart started before the brain died. Yeesh. That's bad. Yeah, his brother was with her. He was not happy. Tried to kill you, huh? That's the problem with your kind. You want the labor. You want the specialized medicine. You want the wolves fighting your wars. You want the dainty... He was doing the high-pitched, nasally voice HR told him not to do anymore. Little fairy stitching with the twinkle lights sewn in. 
He stood, throwing a blood bag into the red biohazard waste bin before dabbing at the corner of his mouth with a napkin, then discarding it as well. You want all the benefits of the mystical and magical without actually dealing with us. You're right, Terry. Well, I'm 300 years old. I may have learned a thing or two. Don't let the job get you down, kid. You know why? Why's that, Terry? I asked, closing my eyes, defeated. Buying bodies may not be glamorous, but at least it's a living. Huh? <laughs> I hate this job. The Apparition by Kim Lambert The traffic is too dense. I'll never make it to the other side of the city in time. I need somewhere isolated, or at least somewhere I can safely hide, fast. The consequences, if I can't find anywhere, are too dire to consider. I'm not willing to take a life-or-death risk for me or anyone else. Then I see the sign, Terryford State Park. I don't know it well, but it's my only option. The sun is brushing the horizon. I take the turn and the road takes me to a small car park. The trees loom above me on a ridge, a hint of a full moon already visible behind them. I throw everything of value in the trunk, hide the key and sprint into those trees. I can feel the ache beginning as I scramble over the top of the ridge, and my eyes begin to blur a little, caught between two realities. I feel it, just too late to save myself. The branch that twists beneath my foot and sends me tumbling down the other side of the ridge, deep into the darkness. A darkness I am soon at one with, as my head slams into a passing tree, hard enough to steal consciousness. Awareness returns slowly, my body hurts in odd places, as it always does after the change, and a tangle of scents assault my sensitive nose. Pine, earth, and forest smells, but also, confusingly, multiple humans overlaid with odd things. Wax, fire, and baked vegetable? I rise, sniffing the air, and stretch, turning, then freeze in shock and fear. An apparition is coming towards me through the trees. Ghostly fluttering white things, bobbing disembodied bloated heads with glowing eyes that flicker, casting strange shadows all around. Instinct takes over and I crouch, a whimper escaping me, trying to make myself small, which is, of course, a lost cause. Perhaps, if it gets closer, I can leap at it and then escape? Then, without warning, a brighter light snaps into being, focused directly on me, from beyond those glowing eyes. I blink, blinded, trapped. Voices come to me. Is that a wolf? But there are no wolves in the city area, you know that. Well, it's a very big dog, then. What's it doing here? I don't know, but I'm scared. What if it bites? Maybe it's just someone's very good Halloween costume. It's big enough. I don't think so. I don't think coming out here was a good idea after all. This is not fun scary. I'm leaving now. It is very big. All right, let's leave. My mind was trying to sort out what I was hearing, and I cautiously lifted my head. The apparition turned its blinding eyes away from me and ran back the way it had come transforming as it did into a batch of children wearing sheets and carrying jack-o'-lanterns. Embarrassment seized me, 
and the urge to laugh hysterically. A pity werewolves can't laugh when in wolf form. The Tip by Andre Drews Trick-or-treaters pass me on the sidewalk as I glare through the glass doors of the pizzeria. Tightwads inside. The stinging behind my eyes gets worse. He's over by the register, waving his arms, complaining to my boss. He's still wearing the gold watch I noticed before. That watch that's got to be worth more than this whole dumpy place. No, I tell myself, don't wake it up. I already screwed up reform school, and then I screwed up every job I ever had. Everything ends in tragic repetition. Ma, the only thing I ain't screwed up yet is Ma's love. My whole life she's blamed herself, especially on those nights we forget. Nowadays she's got a tumor. She can't afford to zap, so she cries a lot. This is bad. The moment I set foot inside, my boss is going to fire me. Earlier, when I delivered the tightwad, I had to ring the bell four times. Finally, he appeared and asked me if I was blind and didn't see the candy. That's when I first noticed his gold watch, as he was pointing to a bowl filled with Tootsie Rolls. No, I'm delivering your pizzas, I said. That's 2473. I thought he had trouble hearing, because he began shaking his head. So I shouted the price at him. Then I must have started looking scary, because suddenly he squealed and tossed a twenty and a five onto the steps behind me, grabbed the boxes, and slammed the door. When I scooped up the bills, I realized my tip was twenty-seven cents. Thanks, asshole, I yelled. I guess he heard that, because here he is now. Watching this guy, thinking of Ma's tumor, I can't stop myself. It wakes up. Tightwad leaves the pizzeria, not noticing me. I follow him, weaving between groups of trick-or-treaters. Finally, we're alone on a side street. After he passes beneath a street lamp, I lodge and push him into an alleyway. He yelps at my yellow eyes. I swipe my claws across his nose and grab his wrist. He struggles, and I launch him against a metal dumpster. I hear his head crack, even before transforming back. I know I've gone too far. I didn't mean to kill him. I never meant to kill any of them. My spiked chest heaving, I gaze at the watch I hold in my bloody talons. The second hand ticks forward and back, stuck between the same two seconds. I flip the watch over. The inside of its band is moldy green, cramping everywhere from withdrawal of my beastly form. I wander back to work. Come here, says my boss as I enter. I slowly approach the cash register. My boss pulls out a bill. Old man came by, said you delivered to him. He hands me the ten. Said he forgot to tip you. Walked all the way here just to give you this. Said he was sorry. The Body Bone by Arlo Sharp Ten-year-old Danny Pierce walked to and from school in a small, midwestern town. 
Sometimes his teenage brother carried him on his shoulders. On the last day of October, the two headed home. A car with loudspeakers on top passed. Someone inside was broadcasting a warning. A huge, living skeleton had escaped from a government laboratory. Strong and ruthless, the result of a scientific experiment gone horribly wrong, it knew nothing but hatred and hunger. The announcer called it the body bone. Everyone should stay behind locked doors until the authorities could apprehend or kill the creature. The lad had seen movies about atomic radiation and how it could turn insects and animals into gigantic killing machines, but he didn't worry. Big Brother would get him safely home. As they entered the front door, rain began. Their house sat on a bank facing a steep downhill street. Alone in the living room, Danny gazed out the picture window. Something came up the hill. A head appeared. Next, a torso. Then the entire figure of the body bone emerged into view. The massive skeleton stood tall and wide. Raindrops spattered off it. It hesitated as if thinking came to a decision. It looked forward to the bottom of the bank, bounded up to the front yard, took one long stride to the porch, bent down and stared through the window. Danny froze. He tried to yell, but he couldn't make a sound. The body bone stepped off the porch, started around the house. Through the adjoining doorway, Danny watched the skeleton walk past the bedroom room. The boy ran into the next room, opposite the bathroom. The body bone appeared at the bathroom window. Its eyeless gaze paralyzed him, pinned him to the spot. He needed to get to the kitchen and warn his parents and brother, but he couldn't move and his voice wouldn't work. The body bone raised a skeletal fist and banged on the bathroom window. Danny woke up on Halloween morning from the scariest nightmare of his life. All day at school, the lad remembered the ringing sound of the body bone's fist striking the bathroom window. That afternoon, his brother had ball practice, and Danny walked home alone. Chills roamed his spine when a car with loudspeakers on top passed, but he breathed easier when he saw a sign on the door requesting votes for an office he'd never heard of. Still, he ran the rest of the way home. As usual, Danny watched for his dad to return from work, Pop always saved something from his lunch for the boy, and he loved to rummage around in the old metal lunchbox for it. After his dad arrived and Danny enjoyed the snack, his dad looked towards the house and frowned. Son, have you been throwing rocks? He asked. No, sir. His dad pointed at the house. Well, I wonder what made that crack in the bathroom window. Danny decided to skip trick-or-treating that night. He might run into a big skeleton. Starflower by Jean-Francois Heon. Michelle, as she called herself back then, knew she had to act fast. Before the London fog had dissipated, she'd received a call from her brother in Paris and had raced outside. The end of October moon shone on her pale face, contrasted by curly black hair and channel red lipstick. Wide-eyed and pedaling as fast as she could, she reached her destination. After unceremoniously throwing her bicycle aside, 
She ran through the gravel path leading to the observatory entrance and up the stairs. As the thick clouds withdrew, curious onlookers gathered outside, many in the vast park surrounding the observatory. They were looking awestruck at the luminous beings. To some, they looked like twisted drapes of stars, to others like celestial butterflies. Already on the top floor and gazing through the telescope, she saw magnificent light pulses coursing through one of the beings, but felt queasy. She saw the butterfly, but felt the larva, the eater. Dread was seeping in, paralyzing her. Remember our teaching, echoed the words of her brother in her mind. She closed her eyes and reached inside. A dormant part of herself bloomed, and overpowering flowers smell jolted her. She scrambled to an oak armoire, retrieved a black velvet bag, ran downstairs and out the entrance. The nearing creatures had divided amongst themselves, each one seemingly drawn to a different person. No, that wasn't it. They kept the same straight trajectories. Rather, each person was drawn to one of them. She opened the bag and hastily took out two items. A pair of butterfly and human had reached each other. Luminous wings folded around a man who was smiling beatifically. Michelle knelt on the gravel path and put down a crystal tile. The man opened his mouth and a strange humming came out. The tile had an elaborate geometric shape reminiscent of a rose. The humming distorted into a lamentation. She brought up the other item, a brass rod high above her shoulder, knuckles white from the grip. The lamentation gave way to an unabashed scream. If others were aware of it, they marched on into their respective otherworldly embrace, nevertheless. The wings merged into a cocoon, turning a dark magenta as a final howl escaped. Pairs had now formed all over the park, the eerie vocalizations rising in intensity. She brought down the rod as the cocoon was unfolding back into a butterfly, the man consumed. Screams were erupting all around. The struck tile shattered and the projected pieces halted in midair as a reddish wave emanated from the metal baton. The closest abomination turned ever so slowly towards her as she leapt and stroked it. A sound disturbingly like a sharp human exhalation was heard as the ghost of itself seemed to be thrown back. Both creature and essence quickly dissipated. She turned toward another foe as she landed and hurled herself, weapon raised high, eyes rapt and screaming defiantly. Starflower's deadly dance lasted all night. Die Werkstatt des Teufels by Karl Plumer Wilhelm? Hildegard pronounced this Wilhelm. Wilhelm, where are you, mein Lieber? Wilhelm wasn't in bed when a loud crash startled her awake. He didn't respond to her call. The sound of the wind outside was her only answer, a wind which had been picking up steadily since midnight. She got up, put on her slippers, and searched the old mansion she shared with her husband of sixty-six years and six months. She checked the thirteen rooms of the house. The only place she didn't look was the basement that hellhole, or so she often referred to it. I'm never going down to the Hallenlach, she'd say. But Wilhelm would cheerfully disagree. 
Ich ist kein Hallenlag. Nein, ich ist mein Werkstatt. Your imagination has gotten the best of you, my dear. Where else could her Wilhelm be at this time of night but his basement workshop? She made her way creakily through the kitchen. The door to hell, she said to herself as she stood there. She wanted to laugh and said it jokingly, but the words came out shaky. Here she was at the workshop door where she'd been thousands of times, to call him to dinner or to the phone or to announce visitors. Not once had she ever entered his inner sanctum sanctorum. Wilhelm, are you down there? Nothing. She tried again, and then once more. No reaction and not a sound from below. So, she did the unthinkable. She turned the doorknob and opened the door. As she did so, a black cat hissed and ran past her into the house. Hildegard had never seen that cat before in her life. It startled her. As did the thunder and lightning which crashed and flashed simultaneously with the cat's emergence. The combination was too much. The old lady lost her balance and her fragile old body tumbled down the steps into the basement. Halfway down, she knocked into Wilhelm, who had climbed up to see what she wanted. They both tumbled together the rest of the way in a dance macabre. Sumacabarum tans. They rolled together, embracing like lovers. Are you all right, my dear? He asked. Yes, Wilhelm, you saved me. This place is not hell, it's magical. Yes, dear, let's both get back to bed. Yes, my love, Hildegard said, taking a quick glance at what secrets the basement might hold. But she saw nothing odd, just an ordinary space filled with jars and boxes and dust. I knew it was innocent, she thought with a smile. Wilhelm helped his bride to her feet, and they both made their cautious way back to bed. And as they did so, a small, easily missed motion occurred down below. Something floated in dirty green liquid in a jar on the basement shelf. A tiny, horrible face on a demon's embryonic body turned to watch the couple leave then twisted back to face the wall to await the end of days when it would finally be released. The Halloween Dare by Clarissa Gosling We met at the end of the lane in the drizzle just as the sky was darkening. Each of us had brought supplies. Rosie a flashlight, Ian a camera, Jack a hammer, and I had garlic on my mom's recommendation. Urban legend said the house was haunted by the ghost of those who had visited on Halloween and never returned. All the older children told stories of previous years, and everyone knew someone who knew a child that had disappeared. Yet every year, a new group would brave its horrors to find the golden key supposed hidden inside. Lucy, are you sure about this? Ian's voice quivered. I nodded, stepped over the broken gate, and pushed my way along the overgrown path. The streetlights flickered, and shadows ran before us. We all huddled together as we walked up to the house. The front door creaked as we pushed it open. I took the first step into the hallway. The mirror on the wall was cracked, reflections spiraling around the room. 
Footsteps sounded upstairs, slow and heavy. Jack grabbed the light from Rosie and charged up the stairs in front of us. He thundered along the corridor. After a squeak and a howl, the light disappeared with a bang. Rosie took one step back and shivered. I can't do this. She scurried out the door, which thudded closed behind her. Ian stepped closer to me, his camera held out in shaking hands. It's just the two of us, Luce. What do we do? Come on. I waved him forward, and we explored further inside, carefully testing every step before standing on it. We peered into rooms full of cobwebs and dust, but no sign of the key. We reached the kitchen as a white shape floated across the floor. Ian turned and jumped out the open window. I held my garlic in front of me, rooted to the floor. As it neared me, it crumpled, landing with a clang on the floor. I nudged it with my foot, and the cloth slid off the key. I grabbed it and crept out the back door. A group of people stood in the shadows. One came towards me. Who was this monster that looked like, moved like, smelled like? As the moon came out from behind a cloud, I recognized her. Mom? Oh, Lucy, I'm so proud of you. I knew you would do it for me. She took the key out of my hand. What? This decides who the sorority queen for the year is. Now it's me. She pressed a cold kiss to my forehead. My legs trembled. A, a game? This had all been a game to them? A contest for their advancement? I threw my garlic at her. Where are my friends? She pointed to them, slumped over and wrapped in blankets. I strode over, and after a group hug, the four of us walked home in silence. The Real Reason by Karen Rakowski the shiny glint of high-carat gold flashed off the coins that lay stacked on her open palm. She slowly closed her long talon fingers around them tightly. The coins melted. The inside chocolate dripped through her fingers, leaving just a flash of foil. Change the circumstances. Change the result. Nothing is as it seems on the hallowed eve. All year she worked as a first-grade teacher, soft and smiley. She was a favorite for her warm hugs and bunny stories. Tonight, transformed, she became a witch. Realistic makeup and realistic clothing had transformed her from pink to putrid. She worked hard to dress and act the part. It should look and feel real on this night of magic. Ready, she opened the door to look for early trick-or-treaters. The noise of large flapping wings startled her. An immense owl left his tree branch to dive down and catch a small, unaware mouse. Back up in his perch, the owl tore into his prey. Disgusting, she said. Woo, cooed the owl with his head cocked to the side. You, and don't scare the children, that's my job, she proclaimed. For each group of trick-or-treat children, she did her finest witch impersonations. She cast spells on the candy to taste more delicious for the polite and good children and to taste rancid for the bullies and greedy ones. The children believed. Each time her door was open, she noticed the owl. Sometimes he appeared to sleep. Sometimes he was alert as he watched, twisting his head almost completely around to observe. 
The dark came on with a wisp of mist. When the doorbell ceased to ring, and the pretend ghosts and goblins had finished their pursuit of treats, she opened the door one last time. Well, Owl, you would have had a lot more fun on a night like this if you were in my shoes, she said with a little laughing cackle, and swirling her hand motion she hoped looked authentic. Still in character, she added, you could have eaten chocolates instead of rodents. Whoo, the owl answered. You, with the limited vocabulary. The owl ruffled his feathers. He stretched his neck, elongated, and arched his throat in a downward motion to spit out a pellet of bones and fur. Oh, yuck, she said with disgust. It sucks to be you. With that, she firmly closed the door. The owl fluttered to the ground. With one more glance at her door, he turned and began to walk away with the waddle of a bird more used to the elegance of flight. His steps became firmer as the feathers transformed or fell away. Walking into the mist, the man changed in circumstance this night by the words of a real witch. Inside, next to her near-empty bowl of treats, she sat comfortably. She scratched the itch on the back of her hand, shocked to discover the first feather. All Hallows by R. W. Hansen A high wind wailed down out of the mountains, crying as though in warning, and wrapped around our small house. My breath turned frosty as I readied for bed. Connor slept soundly across the room, worn out from the day's toil. But Isling let out a frightened cry, and I gathered her up from her basket in front of the fire to sing and rock her back to sleep. A candle flickered from a hollow gourd on the windowsill beside me. I was grateful for the light, even if its carved visage cast nightmarish creatures across the walls. Don't let it dim, ma fair Creona had cautioned this afternoon as I left her cottage with a tincture to ward off the illness that had been sweeping through the village. The fae are about, and tonight is All Hallows. A chill ran down my spine at the memory. Isling murmured restlessly, and I gazed wondering at Isling murmured restlessly, and I gazed wonderingly at her. The light of Jack's lantern gave a ruddy hue to her cheeks and brightened her eyes. Frowning, I lay my hand on her forehead. Another chill went through me that had nothing to do with the cold. Quickly I grabbed the tincture and drizzled it slowly into Isling's mouth. I waited, but there was no effect. So much for Mather Creona. Connor? I crossed the room and shook him gently. Connor? The baby is ill. He rolled over, mumbling something unintelligible, then let out a resounding snore. I looked around the room for help and saw the small washtub on the stove. I had filled fresh from the spring that morning before noticing how listless and fretful Isling was. Hurriedly, I stripped Isling and lowered her into it. The water covered her to the neck. I prayed to all the gods I knew this would work. The water grew warm, and Isling's skin now burned bright scarlet and radiated heat like a small sun. Despair threatened to overwhelm me, but I pushed it down with an effort. What now? I thought I heard a response but it was only the wind, mournful and pleading. I lifted her and quickly dried her limp form. Too weak to cry, each whimper tore my soul to shreds. The wind moaned with sympathetic fear. 
I murmured to her, unconsciously hoping the sound of my voice would somehow keep her with me, swaying in time with the wind as it howled all my pain and sorrow, and Isling slipped ever closer to the other side. I would do anything, I thought, if she could live. The wind died for an instant before coming back more forcefully than before. This time it pleaded and swore at me. Time was running out, it said. I don't understand, I wailed back. Time for what? But as the storm echoed my pain and heartbreak, I knew. I kissed Heisling's forehead softly, murmuring my love to her and set her gently in her basket. Then I walked resolutely to the window and blew out the candle. Very Thin Line by Rebecca Ann Dillon In 1869, on All Hallows' Eve, ten-year-old Jasper Remington is dressed in a ghost costume and has finished trick-or-treating on the streets of Ohio. He carries his little hessian sack with pennies in it heading home, but he never arrives. A hundred and fifty years later on All Hallows' Eve, he is wearing the same costume, carrying the same sack, and he's knocking on doors, still trying to get more pennies for his sack, but no adult can see him. However, at one house he's seen by the family dog, Lady Penelope, who begins whimpering and shivering. When he moves toward her, she hides under the chair in the hallway and refuses to come out. In that same house, ten-year-old William Remington comes downstairs wearing an old white sheet with eye holes and a mouth hole cut out. Mom, here's my costume, he says. Can I please take Lady Penelope out trick-or-treating? His mother smiles, of course, but it's a ghost costume, and when Lady Penelope sees it, she goes back under the chair in the hallway and stays there until William leaves with his jack-o'-lantern candy basket. She refuses to go with him. So William leaves alone and trick-or-treats alone. He has just left one front door with more candy when he sees a kid in a ghost costume like his, with a little burlap sack sitting on the sidewalk, crying. William asks the kid, Why are you crying? The boy says, No one opens the door when I knock, and dogs bark at me or run and hide like your dog. When she saw me, she ran under a chair in your hallway. William sits on the sidewalk next to the boy so he can talk to him. He asks, what's your name? And the boy answers, Jasper Remington. William says, my name is William Remington. I wonder if we're related. And suddenly he realizes that he can see a bit of the sidewalk right through Jasper. The more he looks, the more he can see through the other boy. He whispers, grown-ups can't see you, and Penelope is afraid of you because you're a real ghost. Jasper gets very angry. He doesn't want to be a real ghost, but he's happy that this one boy can see him, can talk to him, because the more he looks at William, the more Jasper realizes that he can see through William, too. Jasper pushes up against William, and both boys blend. Jasper can feel himself breathe in for the first time in forever. He shouts, I'm alive! and he locks William way down deep, so deep he'll never escape. Because on a Hull Hollow's Eve, life calls to death, 
and blood calls to blood. And on All Hallows' Eve, the very thin line between life and death merges. The Road by Elizabeth McCleary Mia, don't go. Mia stared, unblinking. You know it's not about you, right? You know I have to go. He's been gone so long. I don't think it's about me. It's totally about you. It always is. I just... Kit shifted to avoid her sister's blank gaze. The town clock struck its rattling gong. Eleven o'clock. It wouldn't be long now, one way or another. Stilling a shudder that threatened to climb her spine, Kit spoke again. I need you. I don't want you to go. I know, but I have to. He's expecting me. A deflating sigh escaped Kit. This wasn't right. It wasn't what she wanted. But this was her only sister, and Mia was stubborn. Her decision wouldn't change. I'm going with you, she said. Kit, you can't. Just as far as the road, Mia. I at least want to say goodbye when he comes for you. The two stared at each other for a moment, then Mia nodded. Only to the road. But we have to go now. There's no more time to spare. Chill, damp night seeped through Kit's sweater as they walked along the darkened street. Only hours ago, the laughter of children filled the air, but not now. Now the town was utterly still. Wan light from a few windows did little to dispel the gloom, the flicker of dying jack-o'-lanterns even less. Though there was a full moon this Hallow's Eve, deepening clouds hid its silvered surface. Kit could barely keep up with her sister. The black of Mia's jeans, her jacket, and her hair almost disappeared in the dark, making her almost ghostly, hard to follow. Slow down, she said, racing to catch up. Or are you trying to leave me behind before we even get there? He's coming, and if I'm not there... I can't miss him, Kit. I won't take that chance. You're always taking chances, Kit muttered. Why not that one? Mia didn't answer, but Kit thought her pace slowed just a bit. Her sister's hand, chill as death, took hold of hers as they walked. Kit, I'm sorry. Thank you for coming with me. I'm your sister, said Kit. I'd never let you go alone. When they reached the edge of the old road, Mia stopped. This is as far as you can come, she said. Stay here. Tears spilled from Kit's eyes as she folded her arms around her sister, hoping to hold her back. I love you, Kit, Mia said, then pulled away and stepped onto the road. The rustle of leaves announced a stirring of wind that stabbed with icy fingers and parted the clouds. Silver light slipped from between the trees just as midnight began to sound in the distance. Mia, Kit whispered one last time, don't go. Her sister didn't hear, couldn't hear. She was drifting down the old ghost road, finally reunited with her lost love. Kit ran to collapse on the mound that was once her sister and wept. Old Rickety by James Rocourt 
Michael lived on the seventh floor, and I lived on the sixth. The day I moved in, he, rail-thin, bowler, tweed pants, nice smile, held the elevator for me and my few boxes. Going up, I said, thank you. He smiled and answered, Michael. Denise, can I thank you with some coffee? Tea. But he'd come in. British, family all the way back to when New Amsterdam became New York. We discussed the building. A bit long in the tooth, but she's seen everything, built on bedrock. And thank you for the tea. Since then, every morning, he'd come down in the elevator and hold Old Rickety at my floor. Every evening, I would wait by Old Rickety until he arrived, always on time, eight sharp, and I would press seven, then six, and up we went. Rickety stopped and complained if you hit two of her seven buttons at once. Nice dress. It wasn't much, just Alice for the company dress-up. I gave him a smile before Old Rickety's doors wheezed closed and we rattled down to one. I waved at him from the bus. He tipped his hat. The rain hit when the sun went down. All the ghouls and ghosts were getting soaked. I pled a bus and left, caught the early. 7.55, dripping wet, I pressed the call button as someone came in. Mike, hey, lovely. White mask, bodysuit, big knife, his free hand grabbed, shoved me against old Rickety's doors. Let's have some fun. The elevator wheezed and opened. I fell, turned, and he grabbed my hair, threw me back inside. Not nice, kitten. Let's play at your place. One hand grabbed Alice's apron, drew me up. Floor. I pressed six and seven together. Old Rickety wheezed and kept her doors open. Lightning flashed. The lights went out. Damn it! He hit the dead panel over and over. Nothing. Thunder. The lights came up. Hello, Denise. Michael shoved white mask in. The knife came down again. Again. My back burned. Old Rickety's door shut behind me. Michael! Two. Michael! Three. Phone screen shattered, red wetness in my hand. Four. Five. Help! Six. Help! Fire! Fire! Seven. Old Rickety wheezed. The streets were empty. The bus long since stopped. Lightning. The lights went out. The lights came on. Six. Five. Four. Three, left leg wouldn't stand up. Two, crawl, damn it, crawl. One, help, B. B? Thunder boomed. The whole room rumbled. One, old Rickety huffed and her doors wheezed open. And Michael stood there, untouched alone. Perfect Timing by Melissa Mitchell I waited. Her hand paused above the simmering cauldron. A bubble burst, spraying green liquid into the air. 
It landed on the ground with an ominous hiss. What's in it for me? The torchlight flickered, shadows dancing amongst the skulls that lined the cave. I can get you into the underworld. She snorted. The underworld. The spoon began to stir with a flick of her hand. You can do that, but don't have the stomach to kill someone yourself. I'm looking for something that only you can do. I've heard you have a potion that has explosive qualities. She cackled. One vial of this will bring about a death as gruesome as anyone could wish for. It has served me well over the years. The skulls peered out of the darkness in agreement. In fact, I used up the last of my stores just a few days ago. She gestured to a skull on a nearby table, the last remnants of flesh clinging to its jaw. I grimaced. Forcing myself to look away, I noted the bubbling liquid was darkening, bright green giving way to a thick, inky blue. Is it ready? I asked. Almost. It must be bound at exactly the right moment. With blood. Leave it too late and, well... She fixed her black eyes on mine. Someone must have done something terrible to you. I met her gaze steadily. I would be lying if I said I wasn't looking for revenge, but I think I would be doing the world a favor, too. How noble! She scowled. So tell me how exactly you are going to get me into the underworld. Well, I've been there myself, I said. Unexpectedly, I'll admit, but I think I can point you in the right direction. Her eyes flickered towards the cauldron, which was starting to tremor. Ah, perfect timing. She cackled again, this time with a sharp edge. You'll strike an impossible bargain. There's only one way into the underworld. Fortunately, you do have something I need. She grinned. My potion must be bound, and as you're here... Her dagger was flying towards my heart before I had time to blink. It sailed through my body, hitting the wall with a clang. She gawped at me. I grinned. Being a ghost had its perks. After all, we'd been here before. I wasn't offended that she didn't remember me, even though my decomposing skull was sitting on her table. Nor had she remembered revealing her ability to perfectly time the potion's binding with a gleeful pride, just before she'd thrown her knife and killed me. That's how I knew, if I could distract her for just long enough. She looked from me to the rattling cauldron in horror. Perfect timing. Unbound and furious, the potion erupted, and the witch's final shriek was drowned by an explosion of dark, oozing liquid and a roaring hiss. Looks like I got her into the underworld after all. Remade by N. M. Henderson Chala dove under the edge of a collapsed roof, her mouth wide to keep her frantic breath as quiet as possible. She huddled in the shadows, trying to calm the heart slamming against her ribcage like galloping hoofbeats. Sickly mage light ripped the sky with an inverted green and yellow lightning from somewhere beneath the sewers, clawing up at the sky goddess. 
off in what was left of the streets, something that might once have been a rat scrabbled, claw on stone. Chala adjusted her grip on her well-worn knife. Her little brother, Awful, was waiting. In the sewers, safe from the weather, from the usual rough and tumble of the streets, while she earned their daily bread with her reed pipes and her nimble bare feet. At least, it seemed safer. Until this afternoon, when vicious wild magic and warped things that used to be rats and dogs and people came tumbling and slithering and roaring out of the spillways and grates, to the underground and up into the city, ripping and tearing everything they touched. More than half the buildings came down in the first rush of blinding light, with each gut-nodding pulse that followed, more of the jagged city slumped into ruin. Everyone who still had enough fear in their faces to look like they remembered being human was on their way out, past the city walls, away from the pulsing, grasping light and the shuddering thud of hungry magic through air and ground and guts. But Awful waited, and Chala would not leave without him. The sharp, rusty smell of blood hit her hard, she choked back the bile in her throat. Not far now. One more quick dart, and she was there. Their bolt hole was intact, thank the Earth Goddess. Awful! Nothing. She felt about, carefully, swiftly, afoot. Her breath stopped in her chest, the heat flowing from her face like ale from a barrel. No. Warm. It was warm. A leg. A little boy. Awful. Breathing. She gasped in a lungful of fetid air, then another. Alive. She could carry him. Could find a healer. He was alive. The air pulsed. Her head snapped up in time to see a new shock of light flooding down the tunnel towards them. She flung herself atop her brother, forming her body into a shield, an arch. She caught a glimpse of his eyes fluttering open before she dropped her head, covering both their faces in a curtain of her hair against the onrushing wave of light. It hit in a burning cascade of pain and change. She screamed, fighting to keep her place over Awful's limp body, and the light seared and remade her. And then it stopped. She breathed in and looked down at her massive, clawed hands, heavy, muscled legs, broad, armored chest, at her baby brother's trusting eyes. Chala smiled and felt her new fangs crease her lip. Just let anything try to touch her brother now. One Predictable Halloween by Joanna Roberts Nashan strode toward the abandoned house, his shadow stretching ahead of him in the flashlight's flickering beam. The other boys clustered at the edge of the property, betting half their Halloween candy. He wasn't brave enough to cross the threshold. The place was said to be haunted by old man McGee and his dearly departed wife. No problem. Nashan didn't believe in ghosts. He could be in and out fast enough to earn half their stash, and still have time for a little mischief. But the closer he got, the more the old place unnerved him. He creaked the front door open, testing the floorboards with the toe of his sneaker. 
A sickly glow from above enlarged his shadow to monstrous dimensions. Looking up, he saw two ghostly figures floating in midair. Nashan bolted. McGee's ghost frowned at his wife. Last, he saw his shadow. Six more weeks of autumn. Prop Closet by J.J. Guthrie What about this? Stacy held up the red devil horns against the back of her head. Seriously? Do you want everybody at the party to think you're that basic? Stacy's sister rolled her eyes as they continued to search through their mother's collection of costumes. I give up. Stacy threw the horns back into the box. Why do I even want to go? It's not like I'm going to get Jacob's attention. Monica is going to be there. As she mocked Monica. I'm Monica. I have pretty hair. I'm Monica. I always get the hottest guys. Stop pouting. You, my sister, are the prettiest girl in ninth grade. Karen tucked Stacy's hair behind her ear. I promise you are going to get Jacob's attention. She poured the box onto the closet floor. Do you want to be sexy? She held up a corset. Or do you want to be scary? She then held up a shirt that had been torn, stained, and looked like blood from a brutal murder. Stacy contemplated the question. Let's do sexy scary. Stacy grabbed the shirt from Karen's hands. Ew, gross. Why is the paint still wet? She looked down at her hand. She noticed the fluid was thick and dark. When did Mom use this shirt? Karen's eyebrows furrowed. Actually, I don't remember this costume. She grabbed the shirt back from Stacy. Mom! Leaving the closet, they headed to the kitchen. Mom! Sis and I just found this. The paint is still wet. How long has this been up there? When did you use this? Their mom grabbed the article of clothing from Karen's hands. Oh, this? It's not painted. That's actual blood. Karen and Stacy's jaws dropped. They couldn't believe what their mother had said. What do you mean this is real blood? Karen's voice started to shake. She ignored her child's question, shrugged her shoulders, turned back to the counter, and continued cutting vegetables for their dinner stew. Mom, I asked you a question. Karen grabbed her mother's shoulder and swung her around so she could see her face. Looking down at the cutting board, Karen noticed fingers lying on the counter. No additional words were said. Mother grabbed the knife and started to lift it, pointing it towards her children. What are you doing? Mom? Stacy, something is wrong. Mother walked toward them, knife in the air. Stacy, run! They joined hands as they ran past their mother. Each barely escaped a stab with the knife. Karen opened the door, ready to leap out and yell to the neighbors for help. And there, at the door, stood their father. His shirt was torn. Blood was dripping from his face. The girls continued screaming. They held each other tight. They had nowhere to go. Mother was getting closer. Their father's blood was dripping on them and he stood tall above. Happy Halloween, Mom and Dad both explained, right before they couldn't control their laughter. Magic and Stars by Jade de Turville. I left in the dead of night when the blood moon was at its zenith. I had waited until her breath had fallen into the slow rhythm of sleep, and then I ran. I didn't take anything with me, not even my lucky picture of Felicette. I slipped through the darkened streets as fast as my paws could carry me until I reached the Douglas Space Station. I squeezed through the fence 
and darted across the grounds, narrowly avoiding the patrol lights. I almost made it, but my black fur gave me away against the stark white concrete of the main entrance. Stop, a deep voice called. I froze. The guard stomped over and had the audacity to pick me up with his fat fingers. What are you doing here, kitty? he said. Don't patronize me, you great oaf, I replied. Take me to see Captain Peters now. The man's mouth formed an O. Now, I hissed, and he quickly started running with me. Twenty minutes later, and I was in a sterile room, sitting across from Captain Peters. He looked just like he did on the internet. Stern features, bushy white eyebrows, and thin lips. Tell me again, he said. I hadn't pegged him to be an imbecile, this man who had spoken to aliens. I want to go into space, I said slowly. But you're a cat! He started laughing and ran his hands through his snow-white hair. Cats have gone before, rabbits, monkeys, even fruit flies have been. I'm lithe, intelligent, and I can talk. I deserve to go. He blinked at me. Sirens blared and garish red lights began to pulsate. The door burst open and a young man came in panting. What is it? Captain Peters demanded. There's a... a, Spit it out. A witch on the lawn. She's turned a number of guards into frogs, sir, and is screaming that we've stolen her familiar. They looked at me. This is a space station, I said. You must have some kind of weapon to keep her at bay. She has magic, the captain replied. Come on, you're going back to your owner. I hissed. I despised that word. I was not something to be owned. I had dreams of my own, and I was just about to say that when the captain scooped me up and took me outside. Here you go, he said, dropping me on the lawn before raising his arms and carefully backing up. You stole her, Cressida shouted, raising her wand. She ran away, he replied, says she wants to be an astronaut. She looked at me. Trixie? I sighed. Yes. Okay, I'm tired of walking between your ankles. I want to go to space. Well, why didn't you say so? She waved her wand. I opened my eyes to see twinkling stars staring back at me. I extended my hand toward the window. You okay, Captain Clawford, a voice asked beside me. Yes, I'm just where I'm meant to be. Trick and Treat by Linda Simser Love, Monsters Cedric screamed. Enough! Same note. Three nights in a row now, a silent intruder had crept through his house while he slept. He snatched the paper from his pillow and ripped it to shreds, storming through his bedroom and tore open the closet, snarling, Where are you? I'll kill you! His alarm blared, and Cedric took a big breath to calm himself. His lips thinned. Enough, he repeated. Tonight, he would trap the intruder. Cedric locked the front door and strode into the kitchen. He grabbed a knife, then headed for the den, determined to stay awake all night. He shoved the knife under his pillow. Okay, Sneak, I'm ready for you. Outside, the street grew quieter as kids finished trick-or-treating. Cedric ignored the couch spring digging into his back and let his thoughts drift to another Halloween night. 
twenty long years ago. He smiled. It had been the first of many wonderful Halloween nights. Rosalie had tied a cement block around her waist and waded into the lake. When the police went through her diary, they read about her love affair with the monster described in her journal. Luckily, his alibi was rock solid. The coroner's verdict was suicide while of unsound mind. Unsound mind, Cedric guffawed. Of course she was. The only type he liked. Malleable. Needy. Saliva thickened his tongue, savoring his favorite memories of the hundreds he'd driven to suicide every Halloween, just like he had with Rosalie. All called him monster after he used them, whispered his undying love, then took every penny they had before deserting them. Cedric smiled. It was so easy to find these silly, silly women, especially nowadays with the internet. Too bad Natalie, the doe-eyed girl with the diamond chip in her tongue, had spoiled his perfect Halloween night record. The fool had leapt from her balcony three nights ago when he wouldn't answer his phone. Imagining her delicious anguish, Cedric licked his lips. Something fluttered against his cheek and he jumped, pawed at his face. Aghast, his heart raced at the sound of crinkling paper in his hand. The note glowed in the dark. Love. Monsters. The first two dots shimmered, cleared. Two. Sweat ran into his eyes. Cedric knuckled them. The O in monsters stretched into a yawning cavern. A spot of red popped up in the middle, and tiny white stubs erupted along the top and bottom. They sharpened, grew into long fangs. The red spot curled, then elongated and slithered toward him. The last three dots shimmered. E-A-T. The last thing Cedric saw before the black maw engulfed his head was a sparkling diamond chip embedded in the moist tip. Old Time's Sake by Marie Dowd A Seneth Waite House Joe marched into the aged Victorian that housed offices for lesser professors for well over a century. At an antique water fountain, he aborted drinking when he spotted a silverfish. He missed the planar cement block halls and offices at his school's anthropology department, much less prestigious than here. Jane sounded almost ragged when she called in a favor after he got through customs. Piles of research shifted since his last visit, and Joe paused when Jane looked up. His former love's skin was a greenish-yellow, and eyes sunken under bandaging. Joe's heart lurched when he saw the wheelchair. Jane, what happened? Dig accident. Her face twitched as she convulsively clutched at a tome. Need help. Well ruin wasn't last used for Underground Railroad. Cult in the 30s need proof. Police don't believe me. Need you to record it. I can't. I can't. Jane looked away. Joe rubbed eyes wet from grief and pity. Dear heart, I'd love to, but I just got back. No record. Chair can't go down the hole. My grant, I... Huh. Jane jerked. Can't wait until... 
Use headcam. Talk you through streaming. Please, Joe. Hours later, Joe went down the well, anchoring ropes and avoiding the water in the cave at the base. He looked up at the small circle of sky, smelling moss and mold. Back track water. Spiral. At knee level. Press. The stone wall shifted back and cobwebs disappeared into the dark, his flashlight showing a passage. Joe smelled a sickening sweetness. Police didn't come? Wasn't bleeding enough. Sounded crazy. That made Joe want to shake her yet again. The passage opened into a cavern, bodies draped on recliners, faces slack, higher than a kite. Joe had to look away, disgusted. Keep going. Drugged in, so what? A strange sound came from Jen. Keep going. Past the opium den, an even colder space held huge saffron liquid tubes with toddler-sized humans eating people whose cavernous ear holes and eyes still tracked Joe's flashlight without intelligence. Stumbling back, Joe retched. Panting, he growled, Why didn't you tell me? No one believed. What are they? Don't know. Not human. Jane stuttered piecemeal, food banker, breeding, got away, lost recordings, cloud this time. Destroy them. What about the captives? Waiting to dump in, in a tube. Backing away, Joe asked, where are the adults? Don't know. Break tubes. Get out. Joe didn't worry much about breaking the tubes. At the recliners, he saw something squirming in necks and behind eye sockets, silent in the dim. Joe lit the recliners on fire and staggered up and out of the well. He didn't remember driving back to Jane's campus in anger. He still had trouble breathing after smoke and reek. The old building seemed empty, but Jane's office was still lit. Leaning against the door jamb for a second, Joe marched forward to yell at her. He saw her head loll back, and something moved in her eye socket. Kill me, please. Number 99 by Janetta Key. No spelling and writing without a license. I'd only heard that a thousand and one times. The hardest part of broom writing? Staying on the dang thing. My beginner's permit allowed me to practice until it was old hat. My final test was tomorrow, except Tonight was Halloween. Everyone in the supernatural community would be at the Halloween party. Unfortunately, my date and ride called last minute saying he had witch warts, which was highly contagious to magical beings, especially witches, hence the name. I might have gotten away with riding an unlicensed broom, except the mischievous west wind snatched my invitation. I cast one tiny return spell. That is the last thing I remember, and the pivoting wind funnel smacking me. I'd been rocking around the boonies forever. Well, not really, I, I, I think. My head ached. I wasn't sure how long I had been unconscious after the crash. The ground was foggy, no moon. I would cast a telepathy spell to call for help, but this far out, no one would hear me. I had not mastered teleportation yet, even for short distances. 
No matter how long I walked, it felt like I was going nowhere. The building loomed up out of nothingness, a huge, curvy ape monstrosity. I stopped. My skin tingled. The air hummed. I must have tripped a boundary alarm. In a blink, I went from standing in the drive to standing inside the building. A red neon sign over the foyer desk said, Hotel Eternity. The guy behind the desk was in a costume. The skull mask he wore was very realistic and creepy. I could hear the monster mash playing somewhere down one of the hallways in laughter. Had I serendipitously stumbled into my party? Doubtful. This place rattled my witchy senses. I'd just borrow the phone and be on my way. I approached the desk. The guy ignored me. Determined, I said, Excuse me, do you have a phone? He pushed the registrar towards me. I read, Recruitment down Hall 8 and to the right. Look, I just need a phone. Still, no response. Glaring for five minutes changed nothing. I turned. Hallways spiraled out in every direction. Why hadn't I noticed that before? The door sign said, Welcome, Grim Reaper Recruitment Office for Witches. Please take a number and have a seat. I entered. The room was brimming with black cats. Hundreds of witch brooms filled a storage rack that covered one wall. The inner office door opened. Number 99, please enter. The voice sounded irritated and I looked at my number. That was me. I took a seat at the desk. Spelling and writing with no license, huh? The woman smirked at me, even though she was the one dressed like a cartoon witch, striped stockings and red shoes. She handed me a thick black grimoire, broom, and a sickle wand. Welcome to the Grim Witches Squadron 99. Let me reassure you, here you can spell and ride without a consequence. One Night by Patricia Bougiard Can I play with them, Mama? Hidden behind a large pine, he stared with wide orange eyes at the children chasing each other across the carpet of grass below. The crunching of heavy footsteps against the forest floor behind him stopped. No, she said. But why, Mama? Humans are scared of us. Oh. He listened to the squeals of delight that the brisk winds swept up the side of the hill. Mama? Yes, little cub. I can help them not be scared. His short tusks poked through the corners of his soft smile, innocent hope on his furry face. She scooped him up in her strong arms, his thick tail curled around his knees and carried him away from the little town and its children. It doesn't work that way, she said, but it's almost time. Time for what? You'll see. The leaves on the trees turned golden sunset when Mama brought him to the forest edge again. The wind carried the rich scents of pumpkin and cinnamon from the little town to his wet black nose so he could almost taste it. He clambered down from his mother's back, the thick spikes along her spine as footholds, and ran to the pine tree to look down the slope of the hill. Light glinted in the windows, the shadows long with the setting sun, and people emerged into the darkening streets carrying their own tiny orbs of light. He squinted. In the glow of doorways and needles of light, he saw tiny people in glittering dresses and superhero capes, 
Mama, I see someone like me. She laughed and gave him a knowing smile. It's time, little cub, she said. She reached into the soft fold of skin on her belly and pulled out a wooden mask and leather bag. They'll think you're one of them if you have these. She fit the mask over his stubby horns and leaned back with a smile, just like when I was a cub. He crept down the hill and joined a group of masked children, and he clutched his bag nervously. Walk up to the door and say trick-or-treat was what Mama said. So he followed the other children up the sidewalk. Trick-or-treat, sang the children. Roar, said the little monster. The children jumped back in surprise and squealed with delight, and the door opened to warm light. Happy Halloween, said the woman at the door with a flourish of her black cape. She gushed about their costumes as she dropped treats into their bags, and the little monster beamed behind his mask. For one night, he could be with them. Please Only Take One Piece of Candy by James Hussam Steve grabbed a handful of candy and shoved it in his bag. The porch had a single dim bulb, a small table with a bowl of candy sitting on it, and a hand-lettered sign. The three boys didn't bother knocking or shouting the traditional, Trick-or-treat! Hey, you can't do that, Bruce objected. The sign says to take only one piece. It's underlined in everything. Randy grabbed a handful, too. Stop being such a baby. They left the bull out here unguarded. It's their own fault. It's the last house of the night. Might as well get as much as we can, Steve added. Come on. Bruce watched Steve and Randy head down the walkway to the street. He grabbed a single piece of candy and followed after them. The path through the woods to home was dark and quiet. The boys gobbled their candy, eating as much as they could before their parents took it away to inspect it. You're gonna get in trouble for taking all the candy, Bruce said. You only get in trouble if you get caught, Steve shot back. A throbbing hum filled the air above them. Looking up, they saw a large disc, lit up like a Christmas ornament. The lights dimmed and brightened in time with the hum. Cool! It's a UFO! Steve cried out. He knew all about aliens and space. He watched everything he could on the subject. When he wasn't watching the Discovery Channel, he was reading about aliens. Is not. UFOs don't exist, Randy argued. What do they want? Bruce's voice trembled. They probably want to snatch you up, carve your brains out, and eat them. Randy mimed scooping brains out and eating them. That's stupid. They don't do that, Steve said. They probably want to study us like we study ants. A hatch opened in the belly of the saucer, and a large ball descended, pieces of piping extruding from all sides. The pulsing sound stopped. They aren't going to study me. Bruce started running. Chicken! Randy shouted after him. The area flooded with light. A spotlight fell on the two boys, yanking them off the ground. They screamed as they fell upwards towards the spaceship. Bruce stopped running only when he barged through the front door of his house, up the stairs, and straight into bed, pulling the covers over him. In the control room of the ship, Galeb and Trice looked at their new acquisitions on the monitor. Hey, you can't do that, Trice said. The rules are clear. 
that we can only capture one inhabitant for study. Cease acting like a newling, Galeb spat back. They were traveling unguarded. It's their own fault. Besides, it's the last planet to collect specimens from. We may as well stock up in case one passes on during examination. Galeb set the guidance computer for home. The spaceship turned and headed out of the solar system. Out Past Pluto by Connie Cockrell Captain Lorraine Willa checked her forward scanners. It had been a long trip getting out past Pluto. Now it was time to check the anomaly Earth scientists insisted was out here. She didn't believe it. Neither did her science officer, Lieutenant Brody Bishop. On the other hand, her co-pilot and engineering officer, Lieutenant Dana Ajibwa, thought there might be something to the theory. Lorraine mentally shrugged. They'd soon find out. Readings coming in, Captain Willa checked the monitor. Brody reported, Just like the readings from Earth. He turned to look at the captain. It's gotta be some sort of glitch in the program. Maybe not, Dana said. We know practically nothing about the universe. There could be something out here. We just don't know. Brody shook his head. Nonsense. Space is out here, that's all. There's nothing but roaming comets and asteroids until the next solar system. Dana laughed. Maybe. Maybe not. That's why we're out here, isn't it? The rhythmic pinging of the scanner picked up speed. Lorraine's eyebrows drew together. Well... Sounds like we're getting close to something. She turned to look at the other two people. Slow to one-third. Dana complied. Aye, one-third. For every thousand clicks, the pinging increased. Slow half again. Aye, slowing to half again. The pinging sped up. What you got, Brody? Metrics say there's something there, dead ahead. I recommend going even slower. From the scan, we're about on top of it. Slow to drift, Lorraine commanded. Aye, slow to drift. Dana peered out the forward window. Shouldn't we see something if we're so close? Lorraine thought so. Scan reads that something is right in front of us. But I can't tell. Neither of you? Brody stood up and leaned over Dana to look. Nothing. Dead black. No ship. No asteroid. Just the stars shining in the black. Forward speed has fallen to about five clicks per minute, barely moving, Captain. That's when the ship bumped into something. Brody staggered behind Dana, then struggled to his feet and strapped back in. What is it? Five hours later, Brody came back from his spacewalk, pale and sweating. What did you find? Lorraine asked. It's a barrier. Solid with holes. He dropped into his chair. You look through. What did you see? Lorraine had watched her crewman carefully. He shook his head. The light and... And what? Dana asked. Air. Flowing through the holes. How can that be? There's no air in space. Lorraine felt her stomach churn. He handed her his scanner. It's all here. She plugged it into the ship's computer. He'd managed to stick an extension out of the hole. 
video was confusing, but there were lights, a hefty flow of air coming through the hole, and shapes. What are these shapes? They're huge. I don't know, Brody shook his head, but I think we're in a jar. Why the Angel Weeps by Karen Murray. We had called this town home for generations. Apparently, we'd been here before Johnny Smith declared himself mayor. Our house wasn't built on an old burial ground or anything, although the family graves weren't that far from the house. Many mornings, just as the mist from the river started to lift, I would see Grandpa walking to and fro in front of the tombstones. The notes of a tune he had always whistled while he had been alive hung in the air. Sometimes Grandma would walk out to him and walk with him. He'd told her he'd wait for her after all. The rest of the family said it was because of dementia. I kept my mouth shut about the things I saw, scared of the asylum. On Halloween, I followed Grandma down the path to the graves. Although we'd always cleaned the graves on Halloween, we'd never touched Alderbrand's grave. His grave was surrounded by a spiked and rusted metal fence. A stone angel stood at the head of the grave. Moss formed two trails down her face, as if she was crying. The slab of concrete on top of the grave was split and broken. The gray skeleton of a tree grew from between the cracks of the stone. Although it never bore leaves, it still grew year by year. It was the only thing in the graveyard that scared me. Very romantic, Grandma had always said, but not as romantic as your Grandpa waiting for me, of course. I begged Grandma to tell Alderbrand's story again, and she obliged. He ended up falling for Johnny's daughter, Annie. The Smiths were furious. I shivered when Grandma told of how some said Annie had hanged herself from the oak tree on the hill because she found out that she was pregnant. Alderbrand knew it had been her own father who had done the deed. And so Alderbrand swore vengeance. The duel took place on the hill where Annie was buried. Johnny shot Alderbrand in the heart. Grandma wiped some tears from her eyes. They buried him here without her, he continued, and locked him inside the iron like some criminal. That's why the angel weeps. Can't let him out, though. A spirit as angry as that... Her voice trailed off. I stole away to Alderbrand's grave after dark, even though the rain was pouring. I used a crowbar to break away part of the iron fence. Nothing bad happened except for the thunder scaring me, so I went back to bed. The flash flood came shortly after. I stood outside the next morning beneath a clear sky. On the hill, I saw two figures walk into the light. The tree on Alderbrand's grave was blooming. I turned around and looked on as they pulled me from beneath a pile of rubble that had been my room. Grandma came to stand next to me. She didn't cry. Wait for me, she whispered, and I nodded. The light faded away. Killer Cows by Jeanette McSherry Bubba and Leroy were the only kids on Hemlock Lane so it was imperative they be friends. Bubba's dad owned a stretch of cornfield and a pasture on the east bank of Raccoon Hollow. 
Leroy's papa helped till the fields, plant, and now near Halloween harvest a crop of pumpkin. Both boys, being seven years old, were susceptible to scary stories, and Bubba, like his grandpa, was a gifted storyteller. Did you see that scarecrow Dad put up last week? Every morning is plum torn to shreds, Bubba said as he stroked Spooky, their black cat. There's nobody but us in these here parts to be up to no mischief. In the fading light, Leroy's face was too dark to show the fear reflected in his eyes. Maybe the birds were hungry or needed the hay to make nests. Nope, the clothes look like something with claws to rip them apart and the jack-o'-lantern Dad used as his head is smashed to pieces. Well, who do you think done it? Leroy asked. Who else? The cows. Cows don't do shit like that, Leroy replied, taking a good look at the setting sun. We should get back before we get a licking. As they walked through the rows of corn, the little black boy reached out and held his friend's hand. Before they reached the pasture, Rain clouds had obscured the last rays of sunlight. A pregnant, haloed moon was visible coming over the horizon. It looked about the size of a barn, only bigger. Approaching the trees near the driveway, the boys heard something rustle. Come on, Leroy hissed, reluctant to take off running without his friend. Ah, it's just one of those cows, probably Maribel, Bubba said bravely. Something huge and dark blocked their path. Leroy began to shake. It's a bear, Leroy declared. It's not. Probably just one of Farmer Quiz Bulls got out. Don't run, though. It might chase you. Stay calm. Let's back up towards the corn. Leroy did not like the idea of going back into the darkness. He moved west towards the pumpkin patch. Two, three more cows blocked their path. One of them moved, and Leroy jumped a good two feet. The bull charged. Bubba ran towards the cornfield. Leroy screamed for a second, then all was still as a grave. Hiding, his heart throbbing and tears running down his face, Bubba remained unable to move until morning. When he heard his dad's voice calling for him at dawn, he struggled to find his way towards the house. He had to pass the pumpkin patch. Leroy's bloody body lay crumpled beneath the scarecrow. The new jack-o'-lanterns had been cut in half to cover the boy's trampled skull. Spooky, licking blood off Leroy's face, meowed. Bitter Spell by Andy Winter The cold, wet grass brushed my toes and my sandals as I walked through the cemetery. It was late, 2 a.m. I couldn't sleep, so I went for a walk and found myself at Sunset Memorial Gardens on October 13th, the day I always got married. It was too quiet. I stood still, listening. A shuffling noise surrounded me, and the hairs rose on the back of my neck. I turned around in place when I finally saw them. My husbands didn't have any brains when I married them, and now that's all they wanted. Maybe I should have felt scared. After all, there were six undead zombies lumbering towards me, but what I felt was rage. Why couldn't they just stay dead? Why not stalk their ex-wives? 
I saved them from those witches, and this is the thanks I got? I stepped backwards, my feet sinking into the soft earth. That's enough, boys. You go back to your graves right this instant. I command you. Didn't zombies have to follow their master's command? They had obeyed me when they were alive, so their undead state shouldn't make any difference. They kept moving towards me. I held my hands up as if that would keep them at bay. Tom, David, Michael, Johan, Ahmed, Zaobo, stop. I'm telling you, no. I am ordering you, stop. A few of them twitched. Zaobo's head cocked slightly, but they continued their lumbering pace. Anger filled my blood. This was unacceptable. They had to obey me. There was no choice in the matter. Besides, they didn't have the brains to think for themselves. They never had. In that respect, our marriages had been glorious. They closed in. I kept turning in place, trying to keep each in view, looking for a way out. Maybe I just needed a greater force of will. Or a more commanding voice. Stop! I said stop! Now! They reached for me their fingertips grazing my outstretched arms. Maybe I should treat them like misbehaving dogs. In my sternest tone of voice, I said, Down! Stay! Hands grabbed at my shoulders, back, legs. I tried to shake them off, to pull my limbs out of their grasp, but it was useless. While they had weak brains, they were all incredibly strong, even in death. Johan's jaw snapped at my neck. I screamed and fell. The last thing I saw was five pairs of eyes staring dully into my own. I awoke. My eyes opened and my stomach rumbled. I craved something that I couldn't name. A familiar-looking woman stood above my prone body, a sneer of smug satisfaction on her lips as she ground pungent herbs in a mortar. Brains! I moaned and lurched for her. Stop. My body fell still. I couldn't move. Her lips curved up. This is for Johan. Payback is a bitch, isn't it, you homewrecker? Great. I was going to spend the rest of my undead days forced to obey a resentful ex-wife. The Midnight Gamble by Retta Reitanen Ten minutes to midnight, the dealer reminds me. A warning. At midnight, the doors will close. And if I'm still here, I will be trapped in this cursed place until next Halloween. A calculated risk. Now is the time for the game I came here to win. Deal me one more hand. Sir, you have already lost your soul and your firstborn. What more do you have to offer to the house? Call me Michael. Michael, she agrees with impatience. My heart sings at hearing my name again from her lips. Your bet, please. My creativity, my muse. I'm a writer. She closes her eyes and seems to confer with the house through the twisted connection I'm here to end. The house accepts. And your prize? You, Muriel, with your memories intact, and all the claims of this place and all connections to it severed. She blinks in surprise and opens her mouth, but no sound comes out. 
Then the power takes her over again, and she shivers and whispers. The house accepts. Then deal. And she does. Her hands are steady, even though she refuses to meet my eyes. She reveals her hand, one card at a time. Ten of hearts, knight of hearts, queen of hearts, king of hearts. Sweat beads on my forehead, and my hands tremble. Her last card, three of spades. And I have a pair of nines. I won. I fucking won. Mikey, she breathes and finally looks at me. A smile blooms on her face and she is radiant, more beautiful than ever. She remembers she's my Miri again. A deep gong sounds and again at steady intervals. Fuck. It's almost midnight. I grab her hand and we run for the door like our lives depend on it. The house trembles like the earth is shaking, but our momentum keeps us upright. We rush through the door and halfway to the gate. Only then I dare to look behind me. The house is there one moment and then it blinks away. It's over. We're safe. Miri stops us and pulls my head down for a desperate kiss and I crush her to me and never intend to let go. I hold and hold until she finally pulls away. I love an idiot, she groans. Your soul, Mikey, you should have left me there. Never, I love you, baby. You promised away our firstborn. Her voice breaks, the whole reason why. I'm so sorry, I say quietly. We will find a way. No, no, it isn't meant to be. We'll get your soul back and that's it. New try next year, I ask, only half joking. She gives me a withering glare. Don't be a total dumbass. But we'll find a way. I take her hand. We walk away together. And right this moment, all is well with the world. The Burial by John Pollitz I was a reporter for the Brunton Bulletin, the town's only newspaper. One October morning, I walked through the graveyard, enjoying its flame-colored leaves. Clay Weller, once the town derelict, had nonetheless married and produced three children. He worked as the cemetery caretaker, which provided an income, a house, and some chickens and pigs, gaining for himself a local reputation for selling hams notable for their savoriness. He stood knee-deep in a grave. Hello, Clay. Someone pass on? Doc Kramer said he was heading to McGinchy's. I took it as a hint. Orville McGinchy, three-time mayor of the town, also owned its two department stores. Doc Kramer, you sure? They hate each other like the devil. Weller shrugged. Doc Perskin's unavailable. McGinchy married late in life. The doctor never married, though he had once been engaged to the woman McGinchy won away from him. Madeline McGinchy answered my knock. Oh, John, come in. I consoled her until Doc Kramer shuffled down the stairs. What is it, Martin? I asked. I'm afraid he's gone. The new widow wept. I'll make arrangements for tomorrow afternoon, the doctor said softly. We put out a special edition of the paper, adding the angle of a deathbed ending to a twenty years feud though I had little basis for the story. When Doc Kramer didn't attend the funeral, 
I wondered whether my obit had offended him, so I went straight to his house. Doc, I want to apologize. I may have gone too far. Gone too far? Yes, I did. What are you talking about? Vengeance. Doc, what are you talking about? McGinchy is not dead. What do you mean he's not dead? I couldn't let him die unpunished. A hypo. I told him it would make him sleep. Yes, sleep with imperceptible heartbeat and respiration. For at least 36, maybe 48 hours. You had him buried alive? He will awaken to utter darkness. You said will awaken. Is it possible he still sleeps? Or has awakened and not yet gone mad? It's possible. The dose is imprecise. Let's get to Weller's. Weller answered my frantic knock. We must open McGinchy's grave, I cried. Open his coffin? What? Why? No, I won't do it. It's sacrilege. We must. We aren't disturbing the dead. We're saving a living man. Ignoring Weller, I zigzagged through the pigs and chickens, found a shovel, and dug like a madman until I hit wood. Doc and I pried the cover from the coffin and gasped. Weller, it's empty, I cried. The body, I saw it in here. What happened to it? The loud slam of Weller's door halted our inquisition. Weller's wife, carrying two large buckets, walked into the yard. Weller spoke. I wanted to help my family. I used everything. All the bodies. His body. Don't say he was alive. Where is he? I demanded. He pointed toward the feeding trough, where his pigs munched contentedly on the food his wife had newly emptied into it. The end. And that is it for the 2019 Halloween Special Listener Edition. We hope that you have enjoyed part one and part two. We hope that if your story was accepted and read aloud, that you loved the way that we did it. We hope everybody enjoyed the episodes. And (laughs) I don't know, I, I had a lot of fun with this. And I really want to thank everybody for getting so behind it, being so excited, having so much fun with these. And I'm really, really looking forward to next year already. It is a lot of work. It is a massive production, but it's worth it because I get to read all of these super awesome stories. I get to interact with writers and we're given a chance to read these stories out loud for people and maybe help a few authors find a few extra readers. Or as in the case of many of these folks to have their first publication credit. So again, it's it's a real passion project within this huge passion project that is the podcast in general. And I'm hoping that if you didn't submit this year, you will next year. Happy Halloween.